out tonight, Psalm 127. We've been looking at the things that uh, show a nation in decline. Uh, looking at this when he says in vain and that type of thing, uh, they're empty. And uh, we looked at some things last week. We said a nation that tries to succeed being secular. Without the blessing of the Lord, unless the Lord builds a house, you labor in vain that build it. And tonight we're going to look and see that uh, an inordinate trust in military or economy or natural resources or geography, uh, our nation is certainly guilty of this, is going to be in vain. Let's read the whole psalm again, okay? Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, and to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So, trying to build the house yourself, trying to build it with your own resources, without the Lord and without the Lord's blessing, Solomon writes this psalm, one of two that he wrote, and he says it's an empty worthless pursuit now nobody likes to think that they live for nothing or die for nothing nobody likes to think that their life counts for nothing and yet uh, that's basically what Solomon is telling us without the Lord life really doesn't matter life really doesn't count and the pursuits of life end up being like a soap bubble just vain and empty just pop and they're gone now tonight, let's think about this, an inordinate trust in the military. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You know what he's saying there? It doesn't matter how many men you have, how many troops you have, how great your weaponry is, what your strategy is, that if God has decided not to bless you or determined it's time for judgment to come upon your city or your nation or whatever it might be, then that's exactly What's going to happen? In uh, Psalm 20, verse 7, it puts it this way. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's the way it used to be, as we saw last week, the quotes from our founding fathers in our nation. But today, I think we find a, a nation that's kind of smug. We say things that we see happening in other places. Oh, that'll never happen here. They used to uh, say that because of our geography, because we have a Pacific Ocean on the west and Atlantic Ocean on the east, that we are protected and none of those things are going to happen. We are not going to be attacked. And for a long time, that didn't happen. But Pearl Harbor changed that thinking, didn't it? And then 9-11 sure made a difference on all of that. We're not as safe as we think. We're more vulnerable than we uh, would like to admit or think that we are. And we also have been able to hide behind our weaponry and our military. Greatest military in the world. Weapons that the rest of the world look at and they can only dream about having. Can you imagine what the rest of the world thought 
1945 when we dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and another one on Nagasaki uh, and the Japanese certainly were willing to surrender after that. But what did the Russians think? They, they wanted one. And unfortunately we had traitors, uh, what was their names, uh, the Rosenbergs that sold the uh, military secrets to the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union and then the arms race was on. And I remember in the late 70s when they talked about that our military had been uh, decimated and that the Soviet Union had more nuclear missiles than we do. It was the kind of thing that made me just a little uneasy during that time. And I think we're getting a little bit closer to the late 70s in the way that our military is now. It seems like we're more concerned about uh, can an admiral wear a skirt then we are, are we ready and trained and uh, efficient and ready to fight our battles? We're more woke and uh, doing more social experimentation, even in our military, using it for that than we are actually being ready to fight and defend. I think Rush Limbaugh was right when he said the purpose of the military is to kill people and break things. That's basically it. But we uh, are using it now for all kinds of other things. And uh, the woke movement is kind of entered into our military. And uh, so we think about, can they defend us? Well, let me just say this. Without the blessing of God, no, they can't. And when we look back and we see the way that we won wars like the Revolutionary War, which we never should have won, but the blessing of God was with us. And you can go back and look at times of prayer. You can see General Washington. Uh, they even made a famous painting of him kneeling by his horse and praying to Almighty God. There were times when the nation would go to prayer on behalf of the war effort. And then we would see things like weather changes that didn't make any sense and were unpredicted. And uh, all of a sudden we had an advantage against the British and we won the war. And in all the wars since then, all the way to World War II, there was one time when General George Patton, uh, he was not a believer and not necessarily a good man, but he at least acknowledged that God was in control of things and uh, they needed the weather to be a certain way for one of their battles. And he uh, ordered the chaplain to write a prayer that would change the weather. Can you imagine? And uh, you know what happened? The chaplain wrote a prayer. They prayed it together. And they made copies of it. So all of the troops carried it with them in their pocket. And you know what? The weather changed. And Patton actually went to a chapel to say thank you to the God he really didn't know. And uh, there was at least that acknowledgement that we needed the Lord and we needed the Lord's blessing. In fact, I read a, a book that talked about Patton going into a chapel and basically his prayer was this, Lord, this is George Patton and I need to know something. Whose side are you on? And uh, it, at least there was the acknowledgement that we need the Lord as awful and primitive and even pagan as it might be, at least that was something that we understood. President Franklin Roosevelt on the radio on one of his fireside chats led the nation in a word of prayer to Almighty God. There were things like that that we at least understood that we cannot function and we cannot win a war and our military can't do what they were called to do without the blessing of God. Again, 
I'm sure that they didn't fully understand it and I'm sure that there was a lot of it that was more superstitious and kind of superficial but at least that acknowledgement was there. Where are we today? What do we think today? Do we really hunger for the blessing of the Lord? Do we really understand that if He does not bless us and protect us that we have absolutely no hope? Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses we might say today some trust in nuclear weapons some trust in tanks and in guns and all of those type of things artillery and infantry and and good generals and plans and all of that well what if you don't have any of those kind of things what if you don't have those what if your strategy is not very good and on top of that you don't have the blessing of God I was dismayed the way that we pulled out of Afghanistan after that 20-year war and left billions of dollars worth of equipment behind for the Taliban to use and to take up and an entire Air Force base. To me, that's just not very smart to do that. Could that be simply because the Lord is saying, you better turn to me and you better think about me. I'm withdrawing my hand. And even your generals and your tactics and your plans are going to be substandard compared to what they have been in the past. Could it be? Well, other nations that have been mighty and have been the superpowers of their day no longer exist. What makes us think that we are going to make it without the blessing and the hand of the Lord? Now... When we read that psalm, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Uh, I want to be clear, this is not teaching uh, pacifism. been doing a little research in some of my family tree, and uh, some of my ancestors were Quakers. You know what Quakers believed about war? You're not supposed to fight. You're not supposed to give any kind of resistance toward evil whatsoever. They were pacifist. Well, that's not what this verse is teaching. And the reason I know that is because the armies of Israel were well-trained and well-equipped, and they fought in different battles. And we also see in these battles they fought with the blessing of the Lord. The Lord doesn't just fold his hands up and say, well, try your best and I hope it works out, but don't get me involved in any of this. No, he was actively involved in their wars and in their fighting against uh, their enemies. And uh, there were times when they had strong, well-equipped and well-trained armies. But there were times when they didn't. There were times when the enemy was stronger and better equipped and what are we going to do? And they would seek the Lord. One time, King Saul decides we've got to get the Ark of the Covenant and we've got to take it into battle. And God did not honor that because the Ark was captured, you remember, and Israel was defeated. But there were other times, like uh, when we think about Jehoshaphat, where he went and sought the Lord and the Lord said, look, this is not your battle, it's my battle. You go out and start praising me. And they went out and they turned the uh, military into a choir giving praise to God. And then when they came up on the enemy, they found out that God had ambushed the enemy and had killed them and they were able to collect the spoils and they came out way, way ahead. There were different times God worked in different ways and other times it was like the... Uh, Battle of Jericho, just march around the uh, city walls, march around at one time each day, and then on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then when you uh, hear the shofar, the trumpets, when they blow, then you shout. And what happened? The walls 
came tumbling down, as the old song says. So we see a variety of ways that God would work through the military. And then there were those times like Gideon, when he tells Gideon, pare your numbers down to just the bare minimum, bare minimum. And uh, then get a torch and get a uh, clay pot and get yourself a, a shofar was basically what it was, a trumpet, they would call it. And uh, then when you uh, get up there and get ready to attack, then you break the pitcher, you hold up the light, and then you blow the horn, and then you shout. And it scared the, uh, what were those, the Amalekites, I believe? It scared them to death. So sometimes the Lord worked that way. Sometimes it was flat-out supernatural. Other times they had generals, they had armies, they had bows, they had their arrows, they had their spears, they had their catapults, all of those things. And they would make a strategy and they would go into battle with the blessing of the Lord. So the Lord is not saying in this psalm that he is anti-war and it's wrong to go to war. There are just wars and we ought to be able to defend our nation and defend our families and to defend our people. But we have to do it with the blessing of the Lord. And so... The sin here is not in going to war. The sin is the assumption, and I guess we probably should say the presumption, that uh, we can do it in our own strength, our own power, and that we can trust in anything and we can win the war. We can't have our trust in our weaponry. Our trust has to be in the Lord. Now, number two, let's talk about an example. There are two truths that we want to stress here. With God's protection... We are invincible. That's you personally. That's our nation, our culture, whatever it might be. With God's blessing, nobody can tear it down, tear it up, defy it, or uh, wipe it out. God's blessing is upon it. You're also invincible until God's ready for you to die and ready for you to go home. Now, if it's your day, he may choose to kill you in a battle. He may choose to take you home in a car accident or with a sickness or something like that. But you're not going to live a second longer, nor will you die a second sooner than God has uh, ordained for you to do that. And he is the one who can choose that for you. But until that time comes, nobody can touch you, not even the devil. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but he can't until God allows that to actually happen but think about this the flip side when God decrees judgment nothing but the mercy of God can save you nothing but the mercy of God can save you so God comes to a prophet named Jonah Jonah I want you to go to Nineveh that wicked city their wickedness cries out before me and tell them I'm going to destroy them in just a matter of days and Jonah, of course, didn't want to go. And some people have speculated why Jonah didn't want to go. Well, it wasn't just that he was disobedient. He was, but that wasn't the real issue. And uh, it wasn't because he didn't necessarily like Nineveh or anything. Uh, that really doesn't factor into it. Jonah was a prophet, and he knew the word of God. And Jonah, living in the northern kingdom of Israel, he knew that the prophecy was that the Assyrians were going to invade the northern kingdom and take them into captivity, and uh, they were going to be wiped out. Guess what the capital of Assyria is? Nineveh. You know what Jonah was doing? He was a patriot. And he's thinking that if God just goes ahead and destroys the city, 
then there won't be anybody to invade us or take us captive. My nation is saved. The nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel is saved. However, and we find this when we look later on in the book, when uh, Jonah gets hacked off because God didn't destroy them. And you remember what he says? I knew this was going to happen. You're a merciful God, and I knew that if they would repent, you wouldn't destroy them. Because Jonah knew that if Nineveh is spared, Assyria is spared, and then the invasion is going to take place sometime later on. So Jonah has a patriotic bent to him. I just won't go to Nineveh. I won't preach. God will destroy him. Problem solved. Well, you can't out-strategize God. And you can't, uh, you know, can you imagine trying to play chess with God? The God who knows everything and he knows your move before you're even going to know it. And so that whale that swallowed Jonah, not only is it amazing that when the storm came up on the boat when he was on his way to Tarshish took place... But think about the whale. It was there at the right time in the right place. And when Jonah was thrown overboard, the whale swallowed him. But folks, that whale, how long does it take for that whale to get big enough to swallow Jonah? The plan of God in that whale started when the whale was more like a a tadpole, for lack of a better word, whatever you call a little bitty whale, and it had to grow and it had to be ready. God already knew exactly what he was going to do, and then uh, the whale picks up Jonah, and Jonah turns the whale into a prayer room and gets right with God, and then the whale spits him out, and guess where he spits him out? Right there where he needs to be so he can preach to Nineveh. And lo and behold, the Ninevites, by the mercy of God, they repent and God spares them. See, the only reason God would give a warning is because there's an invitation of grace there. If God didn't care and if there, wasn't, if there was no grace, he wouldn't warn them. He'd just do it. Wham! And you're gone. But he was giving them that opportunity and that's what Jonah didn't like and didn't want because he was a patriot. So if you are not under judgment, you're invincible. But if God ever puts his judgment on you, you are going to fall unless God gives you mercy. Uh, I want to talk about a city and a kingdom, an empire actually, a superpower we might say. What about Babylon? Babylon was thought to be the unconquerable empire. I mean, they were just on a roll. Remember that? And Nebuchadnezzar and uh, all of the armies that he's doing just country after country after country is falling and he's taken all kinds of territory and it's just an amazing thing. And uh, yet Babylon, this uh, invincible superpower of its day, in Jeremiah 51 verse 12 it says, Lift up a banner against the walls of Babylon. Reinforce the guard. Station the watchmen. Prepare an ambush. Get ready for war, in other words. But then you know what he says? The Lord will carry out his purpose and his decree against the people of Babylon. And we read in Daniel chapter 5, the king of Babylon is there having a party. They're under siege by the Persians, but they thought we can outlast them. They can't penetrate our walls. They can't get us, and we've got plenty of food, <coughs> plenty to drink. Let's just throw a party while we're doing this. And you remember it was during that party that a finger comes to the wall and begins to write, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin, right? 
Nobody knew what that meant. And somebody said, I remember a prophet that Nebuchadnezzar used to use. And this prophet could tell you what God said. Go get him. And they bring Daniel in. He's an elderly man in his 80s at this point. And you know what he tells the king? Here's what it means. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And the kingdom is taken from you. And it was that night that the Persians figured out that the Euphrates River that ran right through Babylon, if they could dam it up, then the part where the water flowed under the wall, under the gates, there'd be no water there. The armies could just go in underneath, and they did. And they conquered, and the Babylon, uh, Babylonian Empire fell. And they never thought it would happen. They were totally unprepared for it because they were trusting in something other, of course, than the Lord God. And Daniel chapter 5 tells more of that story. Number three, I want you to think about, we're going to read a lot of scripture here, so get ready for this. Uh, what about the showdown? You've heard the story of David and Goliath. They make mention of it in It's a Wonderful Life. The man's talking to Mr. Potter and uh, said all the locals with all their David and Goliath stories. It's a popular thing in our culture and has been for a long time when the little guy wins when the underdog wins when the football team that's supposed to lose can you believe it's almost football season thought of something else we sang Emmanuel God is with us and I thought of Christmas and got immediately cooler and uh but they have these things David and Goliath is it's when the little guy wins it's when the person who's not supposed to win they they pull it off David and Goliath and there have been tons of sermons preached and tons of books written. You've got problems. You've got Goliaths in your life. And with faith, you can stand up and you can slay the Goliaths in your life. Okay? That's not the meaning of the story at all. In fact, it tells us in the text what the meaning of the story is and what's really going on. Uh, because actually, you're probably not David in here. If anybody, you'd be the, the armies of Israel that were chicken to go up against Goliath. You're not the hero of the story. God is the hero of this particular story. So I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 17. And let's just get ready to read the whole story. Make sure we get everything we need to get out of this. Uh, starting at verse 1. You ready? Keep your Bibles open. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together for battle and were gathered at Succoth. Uh, which belongs to Judah. Now remember this is the southern part of Israel, the deserty part of Israel. And uh, so there they are. And they encamp between uh, Succoth and uh, Azekah in uh, uh, Ephes and uh, Damanim. And look at verse number 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and they uh, drew up in battle array, had their uniforms on, all the shiny stuff, all the pageantry, against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits. Anybody got a guess? A cubit's about 18 inches long, approximately. Uh, 18 inches, six times. 
And a span there is a little bit smaller than that. That puts this uh, guy at about nine feet. Maybe a little closer than that. So he's not a giant like you see on cartoons like Jack and the Beanstalk or anything like that. He's just a great big old freak. Okay? I mean, even then, he was just like a freak of nature. That kind of thing. Nine to ten feet tall. And it says he had a bronze helmet on his head. How big was his head, I wonder? And he was armed with a coat of mail. Those... That scaly-looking army, uh, uh, armor. I mean, and the height of the the weight, pardon me, of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. Uh, that's about a hundred and twenty-five or so estimate pounds. It's a heavy armor, isn't it? And he had uh, bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now, the staff of his spear, the wooden part of it, was like a weaver's beam. Okay, a weaver's beam. What, a, what does that mean for us? How do we understand that? That's a, a pole that is about two inches or so in diameter. Think about getting your hand around something two inches in diameter, and it's about ten feet long. Okay, we're talking about something big and something heavy. And it says, and his iron spearhead, this is the Iron Age after all, weighed 600 shekels. That means just the tip of the spear weighed about 17 pounds. I mean, we're talking something big. And for a guy to be able to chunk that thing uh, the way he probably could is uh, pretty impressive. And a shield bearer went before him. And then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come to line up for battle? In other words, what are you doing here? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Uh, that apparently didn't sound real good to them. Verse uh, 10 says, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's, let's say panicked, okay? Terrified, panicked, and all of that. Verse 12, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of uh, this three sons of his three sons who went to battle were uh, Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third one was Shammah. And David was the youngest, the least likely here, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to uh, feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine 
drew near and presented himself 40 days. This has gone on a long time. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. The taunts, the jeering, making fun of Israel and making fun of their God. Verse 17, Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of uh, dried grain, this dried grain, and uh, these ten loaves, and uh, run to your brothers at the camp, and carry uh, these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Okay, so he's basically carrying sandwiches to the troops. Verse 19, now Saul and uh, they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah and they're fighting with the Philistines. Apparently there are some skirmishes that are going on. It's not just Goliath, but Goliath is the main thing. They're not going to win the battle without defeating Goliath. Verse 20, so David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the things uh, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight. They're lining up, but they're not really fighting. They're, they're, they look like they're ready to go. Kind of like, you know, a lot of Christians. They look like they're ready to fight, but not so much when the battle actually happens. So he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and uh, shouting for the battle, all their battle cries and everything. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies at the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Well, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were dreadfully afraid. Again, panicked. Verse 25. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, uh, the king, will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and give him his father's and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Boy, that's a deal, isn't it? Then David spoke to the men who stood by him. And I'm thinking David probably is looking around like, what gives? What, what, what's going on here? Saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For, he, uh, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Starting to see what's happening here? The armies of the living God. It's not just Israel that's embarrassed. This is a thing where they're going against Israel's God and God's had enough of it. Verse 27. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men 
And Eliab's anger, let's call it embarrassment, embarrassed anger, was roused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That was a little bit of an insult. I think I've just been insulted, David might have said. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You're just making fun of us. You want to see our weakness. And David said, what have I done now? Gives you the idea he was in trouble a lot with his brothers, doesn't it? What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him in the, as uh, the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they were reported, they reported them to Saul. That must have been embarrassing. A junior high kid's willing to do what you won't do, king. And he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth. And he, a man of war, from his youth. See the play on words there? You're just a kid. He's been a fighter since he was a kid. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. Remember those few sheep that were no big deal? And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, boy, talk about courage. I went out after it and struck it and delivered it, delivered the lamb from its mouth. And uh, when it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. And moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Gutsy little kid, isn't it? And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Okay, what have we been talking about? If you go to battle, no matter how well equipped you are, without the blessing of the Lord, you're toast. But you can have a junior high kid that goes out there and doesn't even have the proper armor on or the proper training, but with the blessing of the Lord. That's what the point is here. Look at verse 38. So Saul clothed David uh, with his armor. What a nice guy. What a nice guy. Sure, I'll let you go, but oh, please be sure and put on armor. Man. And he put a bronze helmet on his head and also clothed him with a coat of mail, that scaly stuff. Uh, David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. In other words, he wasn't used to it. He didn't know how it would work. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. I've not been trained in them. They're not the right size. So David took them off. Oh, now he's going to go out there as a little kid without any armor on. 
Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and uh, his sling was in his hand. And as he drew near to the Philistine, and he drew near to the Philistine, so the Philistine came and began uh, drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked out and saw David, he disdained him. It's a strong word. For he was only a youth. Goliath was insulted that David would be sent out here. He wanted their biggest, their best, not this little punk. For he was only a youth, ready and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistines and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Another clue as to what's going on here. Cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now this is important. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth, here's the purpose, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. See, it's not just about overcoming your weight problems or overcoming an addiction or building your relationships or your marriage right and overcoming all of the odds. That's not what it's about. This story is about David standing up in front of a man who is way bigger than him, who has cursed his God and cursed the armies of the God of Israel. And David said, I'm not standing for that. And I'll show you that a little junior high punk with no armor and just a slingshot with the blessing of God can win every single time. And it says, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And the next three words tell it all. So it was. Isn't that amazing? Far beyond anything. David had no idea he was going to go to battle when he was coming here. He was just taking sandwiches to the army. But when he heard Goliath, he said, There is a cause. Somebody's got to do something. And he stood up to him and he did it in the name of the Lord of hosts. And guess what? He came out victorious. Why? Because David's a great warrior? No, because God is a great God. And God had made promises to Israel through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the rest of them. And now this Philistine is threatening to undo them. They're going to become slaves to the Philistines. And uh, David says, no, that's that's not going to happen. And so he does that. 
And so we have a great and a wonderful story. This was a showdown. How many times in our lives do we find trials where we think, oh, if I could just get rid of this trial, and the truth of the matter is it's a showdown to see who's going to be Lord, who's going to be God, to see who you're going to obey, to see who you're going to trust. This is the time when you are to stand up and to be counted and to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might like David did in this situation. And number four, there's an application to all of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human. They're not earthly. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. A stronghold is a fortress. We're pulling down fortresses, destroying fortresses. And it says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know what this is about? This is about winning the war of truth. This is about winning the war of what's right. And it's got to start in our minds where we take every thought captive and we don't entertain thoughts that, well, maybe there's something to evolution. Maybe there's something to modern day science. Maybe there's something to the woke movement. Maybe there's something to this transgender thing. Well, you know, I can see a place where a woman might be so desperate that she would have an abortion. We, we don't give in on those kind of things because our thoughts belong to the Lord and we have His mind in us and we are thinking his thoughts and then it says we're going to break down arguments like pulling down a, a fortress and a stronghold how do we do that with the truth of the word of God because the word of God is alive and powerful and it's sharper than any two edged sword but we don't understand the power of the word we think the power is in our presentation the power is in our argument the power is in the way we can put other people in their place but the truth of it is, the power is in the Word of God. And so when it comes to what are we trusting for victory? If we're trusting in ourselves, we're going to fail. If we're trusting in the church, we're going to fail. If we're trusting in somebody that's kind of a guru to us, we're going to fail. Happens all the time. Our trust has to be in the Lord. Not in any kind of strategy, not in any kind of weaponry that we have or anything that we think might really work and be really great. It's got to be Christ. And the weapons cannot be earthly weapons. We don't fight the way the world fights. We don't fight fire with fire. But we come against them in the name of the Lord. And you know what? When David stood against Goliath and said, How dare you defy my God? How dare you defy the armies of Israel that march in his name? That little stone might as well have been an atom bomb. Didn't really matter, did it? Because God was going to take it and use it to bring that giant down. And don't you know, the earth shook when he fell. And David took his sword and cut off his head. And that was the end of that. And the Philistines ran like scared rabbits. And a great victory was won by Israel that day. At the point when they could do nothing, God gave them and granted them a victory. So think about these words. We've got to have faith because we, like so many others, trust in the wrong things. We've got to have courage because we let our culture 
intimidate us. We're afraid to speak up. We're afraid to be different. We're afraid somebody might think we're not cool. We're afraid they might overrun us or out-argue us. Got to get over that kind of stuff. And then we've got to have commitment because some battles are not won quickly or easily and the cost may be really high. William Tyndall in England had a dream and the dream was that the Bible could actually be in English. And it could be written so that a plow, an uneducated plowboy could actually know the Word of God as well as a priest or, you know, a minister or something like that. Boy, the Church of England didn't like that. They never do for some reason. They like the Bible being chained in the church, inaccessible to common people, and in a language that nobody could understand so that the priest could be the big dog and tell them what it meant. That also meant they could twist it. They could deceive people with it. Tyndall said, no, I, I've got a dream that it will be in the native tongue where a plowboy could read it. You know, he was executed for that. And then in 1611, a long time later, the Church of England actually produced what we know as the King James Bible. In English, in the native tongue of the people. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen just because Tyndall wanted to do it. Painstakingly translating out of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and maybe even some of the Latin versions writing it down the way they had to write it and doing all of that work until he couldn't and God took him home through a horrible death and yet the work carried on because it was the will of God. And now many of you probably hold and probably own a King James Version of the Bible, something that Tyndall never saw happen. But here's the key. He never gave up. What does it take to get you to quit? Paul was meeting with some people who were weeping and they were upset about what all was going to happen to him. And he said, what are you trying to do? Tear my heart out? None of these things move me. Why? Because his trust was in the Lord. And he knew that the victory had already been won. And whenever we get it through our minds that our God is sufficient for everything we may face, that the victory's already been won, and that our faith cannot be in anything else except for the Lord, that's when we start winning victories, unexpected victories, like David did when he took down Goliath. That was not on his list of things to accomplish that day. That was not on his bucket list. That was not on his uh, phone calendar that day. He had no idea that was going to happen. But a sovereign God did and had everything ready. And guess what? The victory is always in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his holy name. Amen? Amen. So think about that. The battle is the Lord's. Don't trust in chariots or horses. Trust in the name of the Lord. And remember that, okay? Take your newsletter out and take a look at uh, the things that uh, you need to pray for and the people that you.